I'm Sam, and this is Illegitimate Scholar, a weekly dissident anthropology podcast that asks social studies questions not permitted in mainstream academia. Here we make sense of the senseless perception of the world crafted by modern humanities. Okay, so today I had a conversation with the author of this book, Stone Age Herbalist. This book is called Berserkers, Cannibals, and Shamans. So first he introduces himself, we go over the chapters of his book, uh, we talk about North American archaeology versus European archaeology, uh, we talk about old anthropological methods versus the new ones, what's being studied today and what used to be studied in the past. This is something that Bog Beef has expressed to me a number of times uh, from the good old boys. Uh, we, we talk about where modern archaeology went wrong. I mean, we spent a lot of time on that. Um, we then go into like what can be done differently, what different uh, people, uh, people like people like Stone Age Herbalist, people like Alaric, uh, people like me, if I could put my name on that list, I'd be humble to do so, but, you know, I'm, I'm there, maybe lower on the list than them, but I'm there. Um, you know, we talk about the academic perception of slavery for a little bit as somewhat of a case study. We talk about 60s anthropology and how they viewed hunter-gatherers as peaceful. A lot of these noble savage quotes, or tropes rather, and, and what they mean in uh, movies as well. Um, we talk about misunderstandings of people's practices uh, and viewing them through a certain lens, th th viewing them through those tropes. Um, we talk about how there's, I mean, this is my belief, but having one modern path to success uh, and it, that's relation to patriarchy and matriarchy and what those terms are a result of. Um, we, we talk about pastoralists. We define a few terms, pastoralists, uh, agriculturalists, and there's one other, but we go into some of those specific terms and some examples of them. Uh, we talk about the possible lost civilization in Amazonia and the idea of people not being tied inextricably to their technology, how that technology can change and it can be the same people. Um, we talk about uncontacted tribes in the sense that they are, pretty much all of them are really contacted in some way. Um, and that goes into our last discussion on indigenous adoption of European tech and the resulting uh, in the resulting problems that they see. So, I mean, a lot of great things we talked about. And down below, I got the uh, I, I titled all of the different sections so you can hop around to them since this is a long interview. But seriously, there's a lot of good stuff in here. If you like my content, you'll like his content. And if you like this interview, please check out his book below. The link is there, as well as his Substack, where you can find his writing and his Twitter. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's obviously a, a great pleasure to be invited and a great privilege to be invited on 20 podcast to speak to anyone. I've never really expected to get an audience as big as I have or anyone to buy to buy my book. So I'm always just very grateful. But um my background, as far as I'll let on, is that I'm uh, an archaeologist by training, uh, not an anthropologist by training, but the two overlap and dovetail quite nicely. And I suppose I'm best known for my Twitter account, and I have my Substack, and that's really just taken off in the last few years. And um, yeah. I try and post, I try and post things that are that I think people generally find interesting about archaeology and anthropology, but are either ignored, downplayed, or just just sort of uh, forgotten from the modern version of the disciplines today. And it has really resonated with people just talking about the strangeness 
of human nature, the weirdnesses, the, 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 um, the dark side to human culture. Um, and I, I write a lot about the overlap of biology and, and various other things. But uh, yeah, as a rambling introduction goes, I think that will probably do fine. Yeah, definitely. And and the funny thing is, is that basically it kind of describes this podcast as well. Although mine, I, I think I concentrate less on darker subject matter than you do. Although I, I know it's always there. And I've had, uh, you know, I've had conversations in the Discord and on the podcast of like, yeah, so there's like some cannibalism going on here. I'm not going to go into the specifics because I don't really want to, but it's there. <laughs> I think the first time it it's got brought up... There. It's it's always there. I, I I think the Franklin expedition got relevance, and you know that's unfortunate. But um, yeah, there's a there's a bunch of them. It's always there. Law. I mean, law of the sea. Uh, the reason I brought it up at that point was that like it's it's important to note that when it's when it's an accepted practice in naval culture for hundreds of years because it's out of necessity of what happens. Um, yeah. The uh, side note on that is I I was reading Cook's uh cook's expedition and in cook's expedition like they came back and they had eaten somebody who was like related like cook and one of cook's lieutenants like knew this woman whose son was there was a nephew and then they were like spending time together and she implicitly knew that he had eaten her son um terrible terrible stuff um but yeah yeah so what you do in text form is you know that could have described my podcast in a lot of ways which is which is awesome that we got connected and you're here to do this so i appreciate you coming on um but i got a i I have a number of things i want to talk about with you and from there i'm sure it'll go into whatever direction it can because oh you know what actually i want to do first is i want to have this if you don't mind i'm just going to read out a few chapters from your book just just to cover the kind of content that you cover and what people might be able to see because i mean even just the titles are just incredibly interesting um is that okay that's absolutely fine by me yeah so it's broken up into different parts but It's got human sacrifice in the modern world, uh, which is a number of different localities that I I didn't know that it was going on in these places, including some examples of where specific like government councils were formed against human sacrifice. I know we've talked about human sacrifice in the context of uh, some modern occultist groups. And also, I think I brought it up in reference to Carthage, but these are a number of modern different places. Um. The forest people, I mean, I know that I've, and, and there's a few articles in there. I know that I've talked before about, you know, the Bantu eating pygmies in Africa and special spiritual power and the way that, um, the way that albinos are sometimes treated in Africa, which you go into in some other, some other things. Um, Irish population bottlenecks and the impact of the famine, biology of hierarchy, um, Frenzied like the wolf, berserker phenomenon, and the science of aggression. Uh, the origin of the two spirit and the gay rights movement. It's a spoiler. Uh, two spirit is kind of pretty much made up. Um, on the origin of writing, the Vikings of the specific of the Pacific. That's the Haida people. I didn't read your article on this one, but that's the Haida. We've talked about them before. It's funny. I was I was writing about the Haida just a few days ago. Um, Madagascar was Mozart a shaman Australia's deep past I didn't read that one actually I should get on that 
the metaphysics of Aztec's violence, which is something we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, Iberian graves in Egypt, non-step influences in the Copper Age. We talk a lot about step influence, but non-step influence is interesting. But again, I didn't read that one. Giants of the Deep, a prehistory of whaling, transgender skeleton. Yeah. So yeah, you guys get the point. I, I kind of got, <laughs> got into it. It's like they're they're great. Um, between war bands and the woke in today's archaeology, geez. Yeah. So we, we have a lot of stuff that that's perfect. And, you know, it's it's uh, I talk a lot about that, about this here and when I go on other shows. But um, anthropology and it, just so everyone knows this in, in the United States and Canada, the archaeology departments are under the anthropology department. So it's all one department. But in uh, the UK and in Europe, it's not like that so archaeology and anthropology are more separated in europe i don't know why that is most disciplines are not like that but that's a difference so for me i got an anthropology degree that included archaeology um but for for herb here he was an archaeo he is in archaeology and actually more advanced than i am um and uh that's archaeology separate from anthropology you know the reason for that is that uh it's very difficult to conduct archaeology as a um an independent discipline in the in the americas when your subjects are potentially still living in and amongst you as the native population were when when archaeologists and anthropologists were setting themselves up in the americas so anthropology became the foremost discipline because the people that they wanted to study were still alive Whereas obviously the the people that we're looking at, the bell beakers and the Neolithic and whatever it is, are obviously no, no longer with us. So the two disciplines just naturally separated out just because of the the presence of the indigenous people. I did not know that. <laughs> I should have known that, and I did not know that. That is awesome. Um, yeah, no, that's that's that. I mean that that makes perfect sense, especially because like, I mean I. Like I did an archaeology field school on a Native American reservation where like the people's descendants are still living there. So that yeah, that's so yeah. interesting. But of course, I mean it, it it that has more so to do with um cultural anthropology and ethnography and like anthropology becoming a field in the 19th century in the U S and in Europe, that's like the Indian wars in the U S aren't open, aren't over until the 1890s. So there's still exactly. sovereign nations. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that's, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. But I hadn't, I didn't know that explicitly. I just always knew that they were separate. Um, interesting, but yeah, so your background is in archeology, span right? Yes. Yeah. And um, that, that, that's kind of the only difference is that this is more of a cultural anthropology show and, and you do archaeology, but you know, and everyone listening knows is that there's overlap uh, between the different f subfields of archaeology and anthropology, as well as overlap yes. with other social studies fields. Yeah, so in, in archaeology in Europe and in Britain, it's uh, anthropology enters in through the back door through something called ethnoarchaeology, which is not only common but really an essential component of building any archaeological theory is you know how does it how does that link in with what we know about the ethnography of people who live in particular areas or regions so it's impossible to get around anthropology unless you're very much focused on methodology or, or something 
but yeah, um, yeah it's, it's always there it's just that we don't really go into anthropology sort of the theories and so on in the same way as a pure anthropology degree would so then it, it, when you're studying material culture found i mean the thing that the only thing that's confusing me is that you know anthropology has always been so international that it's like it's how does that play into you know british anthropologists and european anthropologists going overseas to the to new guinea and uh wherever else you know the the brazilian rainforest and even earlier i mean other places yeah, I mean, it does exist. You can study anthropology, and um, people still do. Um, and the sort of heyday of imperial expeditions, and people um, people going out to study study tribes and, and wherever was was intimately connected to British imperial power. And so, with the decline of that, comes the decline of people going to study. In fact, it's just it's quite distasteful and. It's if you speak to anyone who has studied anthropology in the past ten to twenty years, most of that history has been jettisoned from the discipline. It's it's not really it's something to be ashamed and embarrassed of rather than studied. Hmm. Um, so you'd have to go back and look at all of that all of that material on your own time to to get anything from it. So all of the traditional so for example, like all the kinship group definitions are not discussed or used in modern anthropology when you say kinship group definitions you mean like so like the like well like family groups so like the crow or the cree or the eskimo or the dravidian system you know you could look those up and and they exist as terminology but they're not taught anymore because they're seen as um a relic of, of colonial era wait the kinship group like they don't use terms like the cree they don't use the so like there's there's sort of the five or seven whatever systems there are they they define the way that people structure their family networks so like uh, got it um, the Eskimo system so you know uh, most Westerners fall under the Eskimo system it's just referred to as the Eskimo system but nobody it. calls it that no one uses that anymore because nobody wants to talk about um, you know the Eskimo in that way or even use that word <laughs> right yeah yeah they would they would yeah. say Inuit which I mean even I would say Inuit but if something's called the Eskimo system it's it's called the Eskimo it's like changing from from BC to BCE and still using the same time it's like that sort of thing um, yeah that's interesting and, and that's something I've noticed as well is that like these older um, there's lots of good model there are there are a lot of good models that maybe have some issues like like any model but but they are really good at understanding the basics and one of them the the stages model of um of socio-political development it, it, you have and, and the problem the the obvious problem with it is that it's not a lineal you shouldn't have a thing that goes from band into tribe into state or into chiefdom and into state because they there could be overlap between them, you know, it's a spectrum, but it, it's there's still good guides for understanding some basic things about human culture. And I, I think that both in I guess Europe and in America, they're they're against anything that they deem as being offensive to indigenous people. And it's probably worse in well, maybe it's worse in America because I mean when I say America, I mean the US and Canada. 
because we still have First Nations and Indigenous people here, but maybe not. You guys seem to sometimes get a little bit more woke than we do. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's just the anxiety of being, um, of being on, the, on the, the edges of, of modern power. I think um, British people always like to lap up whatever's going on in the States with more ferocity. The zeal of the convert. That makes sense. Um, the Canadians tend to be a little bit more zealous than us as well. Okay, so... <laughs> So uh, let's get into that a little bit because I, I've had a lot of experiences where actually I'll, I'll start this with a, a personal story about archaeology in uh, where I live. So I live in New England. Um, everybody listening to the show knows that I, I live in New England and in New England we have most like, you know, we have Harvard and Yale in New England. Like it's the most old school place settled in the 17th century. It's uh our Native American wars were over in 1677. Um, and I mean, there's, there's of course shame for that. And, you know, for good reason for some of the stuff that happened, it was violent and killed innocent people. Um, it would have happened the other way if it didn't. I mean, it's, it, you know, way she goes, but uh, what are the vanquished? Um, but in new England, we have like, the guy who was the, and I, I won't name him, but the guy from one of the states next to mine who was the state archaeologist of that state. I've met that guy a couple of times, and he doesn't do that anymore. He's in private private archaeology now. He does uh, cultural resource management. I don't know if you guys call it the same thing in Europe, but that's private archaeology. And he was in an argument for years and years and years fighting against a local activist group of mostly white people who were arguing that um, stone, like stones that were most likely glacier erratics, which were like larger boulders left on top of um, exposed in like forests, like, uh, bedrock stones that were out there because of the glaciers and then stones that were likely left on top their glacier glacial glacial erratics and then a number of european um architectural like a number of what is most likely and i believe to be reminiscent of you know 16th and 17th century dutch and english designs for root cellars and foundations and stones um and then some stone cairn piles and piles and stone walls uh stone walls made on farms in new england and there were a number of local activists again mostly white who were arguing that a lot of these were native american artifacts that needed to be treated as sacred and there was some agreement from the local native american tribe and and some disagreement um, and it's, it's, I remember him giving us this talk about how difficult it was to argue with these people and accusations of racism and imperialism and, and, uh, ethno nationalism and, and all these sorts of things. And that's like what I try to explain to people who listen to this show is that archaeology and anthropology and like social science in general, but especially anthropology is like the field. And this is probably why, well, number one, you're an incredible writer. That's why you have so much success. But also, like, I've had pretty good success with this podcast pretty quickly. And I think it's because there is so much of a demand for this because the field is so crazy, like, it's so infiltrated by 
cultural Marxism, left wing ideas, like whatever you want to call it, it's infiltrated with, with whatever that is, whatever colleges are known for, it's most concentrated in this field. And it, it makes interacting with this stuff really, really weird. Um, I know I rambled on for a little bit there, but do you have anything to say on that? Yeah. I mean, where to start really? I think, um, if we take the second world war as a good starting place, the end of the second world war really in, in the, in the European and especially the English speaking world really prompted an entire paradigm shift in this sort of the, the underlying architecture of, of intellectual thought leading up to the second world war. And there was a great deal of not only of sort of soul searching as to why such a catastrophe, uh, such a catastrophe could have happened, but a lot of the, the foundations of the discipline within archaeology and anthropology were scrutinized and found to be essentially found to be pillars or at least supporting pillars of Nazism and of European fascism in general, which in the post-war era became intimately connected through things like post-colonial theory to the whole con the whole concept and the whole construct of Western civilization as it has existed since since uh, at least sort of 1492. Um, and you find this this isn't just um, limited to the anthropology departments. This exists everywhere within the university, within not just academia, but you could say within intellectual thought, I suppose, more broadly since then. It's one of the marks of being an intellectual is to have this basic left-wing idea about how the world has, has turned and formed since the rise of the European powers and since colonialism. Um, and it's not really a surprise in one sense because academics and especially people like anthropologists are very open people. Um, they're very curious. They're very driven by wanting to understand experiences outside of their own. And there was always, there has always been and will always be a, a strain of thought that leads you down the path of left-wing thinking within the discipline it's just inherent to the need to relativize your own culture vis-a-vis -vis someone else's um and that i don't think that will ever go away but slowly over the decades from the 1950s and 60s up till now the different waves of should we say sort of social progressivism have have all taken their toll on the way that the discipline has developed and so you've had you've had the rise of feminism we've had the rise of the different liberation movements we've had the post-colonial movements then in the 90s we had the sort of the queer and the various uh deconstructive constructivist type theories post-modernism had a brief heyday and then we find ourselves in the mid-thousands confronted by sort of quote-unquote the woke phenomenon which is when many people started to see that there was something wrong with the discipline. And so a lot of people trace back this, the problems to sort of around somewhere between 2012 to 2016. But all of those, all of the underlying assumptions of, um, of left-wing thought had already existed within the discipline for 
decades and decades. And so if you want to do, depends how far you want to go back, really, but I mean, you can peel back each layer as it goes, but there's certainly a lot of tension between the older, more liberal um, sort of theorists, thinkers, and, and researchers, and the newer, younger, you could call them all more woke students, although I really, I don't really like the term very much, but people that are more influenced by the by the modern wave of activism around where identity becomes the absolute paramount and things ideas about race become so fundamental that the whole the whole display has to be sort of recreated in in that image um there are deeper things to that and we could go into that if you want to but i'll probably leave it there for the moment but yeah i think yeah i think that, that there's an intellectual history that goes back to the Second World War that leads us to where we are now. But I think it will always be more prominent in anthropology and archaeology because we are a discipline that, by definition, wants to try and understand other cultures, other peoples, other places, and make sense of them on their own terms. And so you need to have a lot of guards and in place to try and protect against um, just wandering down the path of, I mean, it depends on your position really, but if you are broadly left-wing egalitarian-minded, you will easily be carried away down that stream, I think. Yeah, and I, I, I think that I I really feel that it, I, I think that implicit in all of this, in how anthropology and archaeology as a field view other cultures, I, I think that they've gotten to the point where to me, um, so let me in, introduce the idea that I, I've talked about on, on the show before, that cultures tend to have things in their culture, inherent traits that are, you know, a, a kind of very difficult to name. But there's something that's like just in their culture and that can be seen, you know, anecdotally in in how cultures manifest over time. And a specific example I usually go to is that I think about the German culture and rooted in, in Prussianism, military, mil military culture rooted in uh, probably geographical determinism going as far back as uh the geography of Germany being in a valley surrounded by other things. It's like there, there's all this stuff going on. But today I look at Germany and I see that, okay, they're not like Prussian right wing traditional military, but there is like inherent authoritarianism in the German state. And that is a manifestation of that authoritarianism. It's just applied to other things today. The, the German state is authoritarian in the sense that it, you know, it, it's about to ban a democratic party and it feels that that's okay. Or at least there's talk about that. Um, that's of course the alternative for Deutschland, which is how they see it, a right-wing extremist party. I, I get their justification, but I, I think what I'm saying is that they don't, there is a disconnect between these traits still being inherent in their culture and just applied to these new ideas that they view as left-wing and very well-meaning Um but that are actually pretty negative. And I see this in New England as well. New England, where I live, was founded by Puritans. It's always had an emphasis on education, but it's also had an extraordinarily um, imperialist and a extraordinarily classist system inherent in it that that is 
di- directly taken from uh, England. It's because this place was settled. Um, and the book American Nations by Colin Woodard goes into these different places and how the culture of it is created from the beginning. It's very hard to change it after that. But that's a, a long-winded way of saying that in anthropology and in Western culture in general, I think that the ideas of Western culture being inherently superior to other cultures and by extension the um, higher class versions of Western culture, I think that that's even still in left-wing people in college today because there there's a – in addition to like the, the well-meaning looking at other cultures feeling and it's manifested today and, you know, feeling shame about what's happened in the past, feeling personal shame in, uh, in group, anti in group bias from white liberals in America versus, uh, positive feelings of the out group. I mean, it manifests in all those ways, but I think that there's also a lack of moral agency that's extended to minorities and Native American groups. And there's there's even still a homogenization of the way that Native Americans are treated. And, you know, things like the two-spirit thing, like you bring up, is that like in in one way, and this happens with attacks on Graham Hancock as well, and in one way they're like, oh, we're we're protecting the indigenous people. This is an indigenous indigenous idea, but in, in another way, they're they're colonizing Native American languages. Uh, like there's a Native American language that's trying to be reconstructed because of a very real genocide committed against the Ojibwe people, and then they construct a word that probably had no place in this culture um, to fit into modern Western sexual thought. Uh, at least that's the way I, I, I see it. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, I, I, I consider myself an extreme cultural relativist. You know, I'm not against the West. I'm, I, I am, you know, I'm pro-Western. I'm proud to be who I am. I, I have no problem with being white. I, I do understand that I don't personally feel that a lot of those things done in the past were bad. But I also, like, I, I personally think that with how I feel today, like, you know, it's bad to just commit genocide on a whole people that sucks. You know, uh, we're not doing that today, but it's, um, it's unfortunate, but I, I don't take it to the same place that the left does, uh, culturally. And I think that they take it in a direction. Have you read the book, uh, the weirdest people in the world by Joseph, Joseph Henrich, Joseph Heinrich? No, but I read your article about weird people, uh, what white, something it's uh i think it's western uh educated industrial rich democratic but it's yeah it's a very interesting idea that came out of the the field of psychology which is that all psychological studies almost to date have been conducted on a very small subset of the global population which is the western europeans essentially and, and their offspring um right and this the idea of weird psychology is that actually there is something profoundly unusual about Western Europeans when compared to the rest of the world, um, that we we are unusual in a lot of different traits, um, one of which is, is um, the application of universalism to almost everything that we do. And uh, it's, a, it's a good book, and the whole, the whole idea of weird psychology is, is very interesting, but it's... I think you, if you take it, if you apply that lens to anthropology, it's 
Anthropology is an unusual discipline, again, in that sense, because not many, it doesn't really appear in many other times and places. There's hints, there's sort of beginnings of it with Herodotus, most imperial ventures like the Persians, the various uh, Chinese dynasties and so on, have something like a proto-anthropology. But to really create a full discipline of trying to understand all the different cultures around the world is a project that only only a culture which was very universalist in its outlook could really undertake, which is one that and really only weird psych- psychological cultures have done. Um, and once once it starts to be taken up, once it starts to be taken up by cultures that are not like this, then you start to see a and then mingled in with left-wing thought you start you, you get these very odd offshoots where you get like um native american studies uh black studies um and so on where the universalist aspect of the discipline is actually narrowed down to a very very small and quite parochial outlook it's parochial at least from from my point of view where only what counts from within that culture sort of is is interesting and you even get people who, who start to talk about like uh, native american science so science but from a native american point of view and you start to think this doesn't really make any sense it doesn't make any sense to me because of the way that i was raised and the way anthropology and science is it's a universalist project but actually most people around the world don't view themselves and their worldviews and their cosmologies and their their metaphysics in that universalist way. They, they view it as coming from their own rooted locale with their own backgrounds and their own presuppositions. And so in some senses, left-wing thought is quite a useful vehicle and quite a, quite a subversive influence because it, it, it has its own project, which is to sort of demolish the foundations of sort of uh of everything that's come from western colonialism the, around sort of the 15th end of the 15th century onwards and um you know, so we end up in this they end up doing what you're talking about which is they end up strip mining other cultures for what they can see as weapons to 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 fight what they see as the dominant ideology or the dominant hegemony, which hasn't been the case for many many years, obviously, but it's still sort of presented that way. You know, anthropologists are still presented as as sort of um, you know top hatted evil monopoly type guys, <laughs> which is just a, just not be farther case. from I mean, the truth. Yeah, it couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, most most anthropologist teachers are you know women with with blue hair or whatever. It's just. Mm-hmm. It just is not the case, but that's still the view. And so, yeah, I, yeah. I, like you, I, I had a point in there, but it's 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 rambled off. But that's that's no, that was um, great. That's sort of where where I see those two things crossing over, and why yeah, leftism does have that tendency to to do a sort of a, a form of colonization on its own, where it's interested in just taking and using other people's cultures as battering rams. Where I want to go with that is, so you mentioned in there the early 1500s, end of the 1400s, and that right there is essentially the beginning of the modern era, the the modern age. And there's a number of things that happen in that time. So 1492 is important for two reasons. It's it's Columbus, which is 
the first time it will whether or not they were the first Europeans to enter North America or the Americas rather. I mean, that's probably not true. It was probably the Vikings, but they're 1492 connects the old and the new world. It connects Eurasia and Africa with the Americas forever. Um, I mean, in perpetuity. Uh, and that happens in connection with another thing that happens in the end of the 1400s, which is the fall of Constantinople, uh, the fall of the Eastern Roman empire which cuts off the trade routes to Asia by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, you also have the Reconquista, which happens in uh, 1492. And in the late 1400s, early 1500s, you have the Protestant Reformation. But the most important thing for, for all of this is, you know, it, the last that, that's the last 500 years. Everything since about 1500 has been pretty much non-arbitrarily different than stuff that came before. And, and this is really where... Uh, I mark the big difference, but this is a time period, the time between the late middle ages, we'll, we'll say the 1100s, 1200s, and probably 1700. That's not really talked about a lot, at least in American history, from what I experience. Um, and when I say American history, I mean, history taught in America. So I just, you guys, if you're listeners, you know that we just did a five part series on the anthropology of religion. And one of the main things that we talk about is the compartmentalization of religion and other aspects of society into these commensurate parts, these socially constructed words that are um, created by these different fields, these different subfields, these different disciplines in universities, um, within anthropology, anthropology itself, all these different fields that are created, they're compartmentalized. And then inside anthropology inside cultural anthropology the definitions of things like religion the economy society all these things that in a lot of other places were just considered intertwined and these commensurate parts work together in most places in more ways than you probably realize and i don't think people realize and this is something we talk a lot about on this show is that even those words and those definitions are social constructions that affect the way that you interact with the world. So even something as basic as that is in your brain when you're thinking about it, it's affecting the way that you view other cultures. So this is kind of where we get into like, no matter what you're doing, you're no matter what you're doing, how you're looking at something else, things are created twice, once in the mind and once in reality. So it's like you have a particular lens, everybody does, they look at things and it's through the lens of what you understand. So even if you're left wing, whatever, even if you're like very well-meaning, it's still through this lens of like uh, of whatever your upbringing is. And even naming that is compartmentalizing it in a certain way. Um, but th the point is that when we're looking at religion, we're, we're defining religion, it's being defined from a Western perspective. And how that moves over time, even today, even this left-wing archaeology, left-wing anthropology that's being taught by, you know, 24-year-old professors with blue hair whose parents may or may not also have been professors, but that wasn't part of their hiring, um, apparently. They, they're they're looking at things from a Western perspective and they could say it's all like, oh my gosh, we're doing everything for the indigenous people, but it's it's their particular chosen indigenous people because indigenous people are, are not a monolith and it's usually you know white people that are are teaching them 
how to um like uh, what to do and i kind of got around my point there but it's if you look at Asia, if you look at the religions in Asia, I saw an article on Gallup recently that was like, well, the the Chinese don't say they're religious, but then why do three out of 10 of them pray at an altar every day? It's like, because they're religious, dude. It's just a lack of translation thing. So the idea of compartmentalizing religion is very much a Western idea. And in addition to that, the idea of destroying universal truth and you may or may not agree with me, but the idea of destroying universal truth, it, it is tied in inextricably with Western culture, with Western academia, and with compartmentalizing religion into different things. And I think when it goes in to these other, uh, other cultures, when it goes into Native American cultures, when it goes into uh, African cultures and Asian cultures, people in left-wing anthropology are willing to understand non-arbitrarily differently the worldview of people like Native Americans and Africans as being unchanging and being a example of a metaphysical truth that they're willing to accept, but they won't do the same to Western culture. And there's a, there's a disconnect there. And that disconnect to me is that they view Western culture as inherently different from the rest of them, the rest of all of the cultures. And to me, th that really is a manifestation of old ideas of white supremacy, which is neither here nor there. But, you know, I, I don't that that is what it is. It's but it's like to me, when I see that I'm, I'm saying I, I see I see I see racism and I, I see xenophobia, but just hidden behind like. A smiling white girl um but i said a lot there again i guess this is just how we're gonna have a conversation we're just gonna go back and forth saying things that the other will understand well and have something to say on it's good because that is the way i talk um was there a bit you wanted me to respond to specifically was there anything that you latched onto anywhere in what i said well, a, there was a few different points in there. I think one, how to understand religion globally from, you know, between different human groups is an interesting topic in and of itself. I think the second point about, um, I think sort of reiterating what we've already said, I think we, you have, we always have to understand most, well, okay, first and foremost, I think most, most anthropologists today have largely given up on what people assume anthropology actually is, which is the study of, you know, of other other cultures trying to trying to make sense of of the human experience through studying other cultures. Most anthropologists don't study people in that way anymore. It's it's seen as a, a sort of uncouth, distasteful, elitist. Um, at worst, it's reflecting the the you know the excesses of the colonial period. So the idea that there are any anthropologists who are making sort of sort of Evans Pritchard style studies of the neural or someone anymore, I think people need to abandon that thought because that simply doesn't happen anymore. There aren't really anthropologists who do that. Most modern anthropology is often concerned with much more abstract concepts like digital communities, um, or it's focused its focus on the non-Western world is through things like, you know, you might find studies of like, um, 
the women's resistance to patriarchy amongst the you know the Gambian tribe, etc., etc. It's usually what most anthropology comes down to is, is studies of things like subaltern studies about resistance, um, hiddenness, the way that women organize out of the limelight. It's it's all to do with a quite crude conception of power, how they think power is distributed and, and developed. There's really nothing left of the the what people assume anthropology is, which is that someone sat observing people who are radically different from our own, trying to understand them. That has just gone, really. Um, there are echoes of it in various places under, under different things. So the study of animism, which has become very important for uh, a tradition in, in the humanities called the ontological turn that was largely driven by certain field studies in the, in the Amazonian region. But for most of it, yeah, it's just not, not that way. So, so we're talking about different... the fusion in the Yanomamo in Brazil. Uh, people like Vivares de Castro and their study of like, um, you know, personhood amongst plants and animals and things, oh, which okay, is never mind. No. <laughs> very much imported into, into things like object oriented ontology and lots of very quite boring, has to be said, they're very boring theoretical ideas that people concern themselves with. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking about an earlier French anthropologist who did a lot of really good work in participant observation with the Yanomamo in the deep. That, but that's the older stuff that was good yeah. and that people still look at. Like there's documentaries from the 60s and 70s that you can watch today and they're better. Like on exactly. the Kung people, um, here's a great one. Yeah, it sucks, man. But you're totally right. It's it's all it's all that today, mostly. And this, the, the other stuff doesn't get as much attention. No, um, but they're probably, I don't think they really care how much attention they get. Uh, it's really an internal game, academia, for yeah. sort of status and climbing climbing up the ladder. But uh, So where I was going with this is, so that's really what most anthropology is, is like that. So we have to, we have to then imagine that the idea of, the, the ideas in most sort of, um, say, a new master's students or a postgraduate student's head is, is generally something like, uh, you know, Western culture is bad. And it's bad mostly because of a number of things, patriarchy, colonialism, Christianity, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so anything outside of that is generally good. But to be honest, most most people today really don't have a very, very poor grasp on history and other places and you know how how world history has developed and the West's place within itself. Um and it's most most of the time those kinds of histories are uh, used really only as sort of weapons. But you know, I, I've 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 had students who you know just don't understand very simple things like which came first, the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire, or you know where at what at what point roughly, you know. Um, related to, to Jesus's birth, when did the Persians invade Greece? You know, these are things that people just don't have a grasp on anymore. The, 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 if you go back and read Victorian era texts, people had a very, 
very good grasp of world history languages. They, almost nobody was a monodline that way. Today's students and and will become teachers have really no, no no great knowledge outside of their very specific subjects area um and so most of what they understand is more emotion and moral thinking rather than actual facts so the the how somebody feels about um you know the spanish conquest of the americas is far more driven by emotion and by moral thinking than it is by facts because they couldn't name any dates or people or places but they do know that it was bad and that's yeah that's generally the pattern for most of um most topics that you'll encounter outside of their own very very narrow area um so there's that if you do want to talk about religion i'm also you know i'm very happy to do that but i think that universalism that you're, that you're talking about is very unreflective it's not a it's not it doesn't come out of some deep study of marxism or something it's just a knee-jerk simple moral reflex where it allows them to position themselves as the good people and what they don't like about the western world as as bad um and it, i don't think there are deeper reasons for it but when you actually talk to most people they don't really have any deeper reasons for holding them other than they know that it is bad yeah and i and i fully agree and and honestly i you know i've had this experience with a lot of people when i when i talk about stuff both in history and uh anthropology classrooms i have uh, bachelor's degrees in both history and anthropology so it's i i definitely feel more in the anthropology study by the way and and the most in education but it's it isn't rooted in in deep study and i think part of that is because they don't they don't believe that these things are even like available or acceptable for debate um and the problem is that you know these are things that i like to talk about uh for me and then it's just i try to talk about them and people are like oh we can't talk about that this is supposed to be accepted truth um and that's what ends up being accepted truth in academia is these ideas and you know they don't they don't hold up to scrutiny at all but it doesn't matter because they're not something that's up to scrutiny you're not allowed to have scrutiny of it when you have like especially something that's so obviously morally muddled like the um like the spanish conquest of mexico which of course is a problem in itself but it's not like what the Aztecs were doing was was great. And it's not even like the Aztecs were some longstanding culture like the Mayans or the Olmecs. They were a aberration in Central America. If the Spanish hadn't come in, they'd be gone very soon because I, I always compare them to the Assyrians. They're they're not they're not a good representation. But you know, I digress on the Aztecs as I always bring them up. But it's it's um just the idea that it's inherently wrong for the Western invaders, for the Spanish invaders to invade in, but the Aztecs are not given the dignity of being up to moral debate about their own actions, even though they had, you know, I mean, you know what the Aztecs did and it, 
obviously we're doing this for the benefit of the other people. So they, I mean, they, you know, are, they have ritual sacrifice of people surrounding them. So they would capture a place just like the Romans would. And those allies of theirs that instead of fighting in the Aztecs armies, they would be selected for periodic ritual combat where they would be forced to field an army against the Aztecs. And, you know, it's all just very awful stuff, no matter which way you look at it. And the Incas and the Mayans by any standard are, are better. Um, but that's where it comes into this non-universalist approach when only applied to the Europeans. And it, I can only read that in the way that they view Western culture as above other cultures. And that manifests itself, even though they would deny it, in them believing that Western culture is the only one that is up for moral debate, while all other cultures need to be viewed in the culturally, culturally relativist lens that they would have viewed all cultures in in the past. And Unfortunately, it, it takes a lot of academic rigor and legitimacy out of the field and leads to this stuff that you're discussing, this ontological study of the meta-anthropology, even though we're living in a situation where we could really use some real old-school cultural anthropology, some real old-school participant study in places because like 40% of world languages are endangered and many of them will likely just be gone. And even if they're you know, even if they're preserved, it's going to be preserved for just the internet. Um, but yeah, it's, I agree with you. I, I agree with pretty much everything that you said. Um, My own approach to this is to develop something like a methodological amoralism to history uh, and prehistory. And I think that that is the only intellectually honest way that you can go about studying people on their own terms is to take a, a very in a way quite a cold and maybe even a cruel amoral reasoning to everything and to try and study it as best you can without letting moral judgments cloud your study of them however you might personally feel about them um you know how uh, the uh, the aztec torture of their children to the god slalok is a horrible horrible affair but i have to study it with a very dispassionate frame of reference to just not not get involved with it emotionally and not try and um use it as a parable in any way and just to study it as as is and i think when you do that and there's a lot more richness to the world comes tumbling out once you apply that framework um there's a lot more the world becomes a much more interesting and bright and vivid place um, because you can you can start to approach areas of human nature and the human story that have that are generally ignored or or have been refuted and just just see them on their own terms and there's a certain glory in that even though they are often horrible um, or just boring. Lots of human history is quite dull. Um, and you can, and I don't see, I think that is the only intellectually honest way that you can really make a study these days is to try and, uh, reject the moral thinking and reject anything that smacks of an ideological program and just try and look for truth 
I mean, it's something I always try to impress in my own writing and on people. It's just ultimately the truth wins and truth is what matters and truth should be the guiding star to the way that you study and everything else should be ignored in favor of just trying to find the truth, no matter how uncomfortable that makes you or other people, because ultimately there's no other reason for academia to exist than to try and find truth. Yeah. I mean, again, I fully agree. It's, and, and this is what should be the natural manifestation of compartmentalization of academics, especially in social science and social studies. It's, you need to take a, or at least you should need to take this amoral approach if you want to be truly culturally relative. But what, what I see a lot is that you have all this moral grandstanding, virtue signaling, um, you know, almost written kowtowing by people when they're, when they're writing papers. And, you know, I, I think it would be much better off. And, you know, I'm guilty of doing a little bit of this as well. I, I often just say one thing, get it out of the way at the beginning. But that's like, that's the point. You can't muddle, or at least it's not as efficient to muddle your independent academic study of a subject in emotions. Because once you bring emotions into it at all, and you, you bring more morality into it at all, then you're then opening up everything that you're talking about to the to the lens of morality and and once you do that you're you're slowing yourself down in the sense that every single thing you look at you then have to look at it through that lens as well and you're making yourself less efficient because there's things that you're just going to slow down on a specific topic or a specific part of that topic and i think that that's very bad and i think we really should be pulling the emotion out of it. But what I see now is just a pay, any paper that seeks to address any of this stuff has to spend, you know, 30% of the time just being like, well, I know it's, it's, you know, an economic study of slavery, for example, I was reading a recent economic study of slavery and they're, they're looking at it from an economic lens, but you know, 30% of the book is just like, Oh, slavery was evil. It's bad to be like, you almost just shouldn't look at it through that lens because you're not allowed to separate it from this other part, even though separation and compartmentalization is the entire point of academia. It's, it's what it's, it's most defining characteristic. Well, um, slavery is a good example because as a topic, it has been completely buried under the weight of the, activist and political and moral side of the transatlantic slavery um, and yeah. transatlantic slavery is essentially what people refer to when they use the word slavery and that that's very bad <laughs> because is. that yeah. is a very small time and place in the in the wider story of, of, of humans it's a very specific time and place and slavery has existed almost since forever as far as we can tell um yeah as since, old as civilization i would say probably the, at least the mid holocene there has been people who have who have been enslaved and obviously slavery is not a monolithic thing it differs from time and place as to what it means roman slavery is not the same as chattel slavery etc etc um but 
to own to to make slavery synonymous with transatlantic slavery is to is to then moralize the, the word slavery so even saying it makes people feel extremely uncomfortable um and then topics around slavery have a great taboo and they need to pay deference to what people see as the greatest sin of slavery which was transatlantic as opposed to say arab slavery or any other time and place where it has been practiced yeah. um and so slavery is a good example because yeah it's 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 not just dominated by it is now totally synonymous with a moral approach to academia um and and so it's only by cutting that off completely and trying to say what is slavery and where has it been practiced and you know how is it manifested in times and places where has it been rejected can you actually get something interesting out of it i think right and in this also it's this is one of those examples of a time when a it's ecclesiastical truth applied to academic pursuits when they take slavery and then they look at the transatlantic slavery which is you know one manifestation of slavery and in, in my opinion transatlantic slavery the specifics of transatlantic slavery they come from the combination of the modern world which was moving to a moralistic place that it would eventually get to where they where they're naturally going to go away from slavery and a lot of that has to do with capitalism but it, it, transatlantic slavery it comes out of the combination of old school slavery, which was slavery. Like I'll go into the specifics of that in a second, but it, it comes from that and that being combined with the modern idea of capitalism and capitalism, I think for a number of reasons, just destroys the idea of slavery because it's more economically efficient to just have everything be fiat currency and take a portion of people's money. It's effectively, if you have three people paying 33% tax, it's the same as having one slave from a bookkeeping perspective. But if you say that, people will be like, oh, my God, you're being insensitive. But no, from an economic perspective, that is true. And maybe you don't want to look at it just from an economic perspective, but that's what it is. If three people's labor, you take 33% of the worth of three people's labor, that is one slave. Um, so... And in, in, so the specifics of that, because I like to go into specifics of this, if you look at slavery in the 1400s and prior to that, it's all war captives, mostly. Um, there's elements of uh, chattel slavery in other places of people's descendants being slaves. But in the 1400s, that what it is, that's what it is. In the 1500s, you have Portuguese people actually doing slave trade, slave raids into Africa. You have some examples of um, Francis Drake, uh, in his twenties, he disavowed it by the time he was 28. Francis Drake is one of my favorite people, by the way, but Francis Drake, who I like to consider an early anthropologist, he did a lot of work. Um, I, th I think that his survival is due to his understanding of, uh, of native cultures and other cultures in general. Um, can't go into that now, but you know, he was doing slave raids in his twenties in Africa. Um, and it was a dangerous thing. And eventually with, you know, uh, with Adam Smith, who the University of Edinburgh, you know, shout out University of Edinburgh, where I also went for a brief period of time, they um, that changes the interaction. It turns into this thing with slave ships and and 
modern economics being applied to human life, but this is all culturally informed by the culture of the time. It's like the slavery of other places is also informed by how that country functions. Like the Ottoman Empire, they have janissaries, some different, the Arab slave trade, they do, unfortunately, they were castrating people instead. And then that was the way that their culture did slavery. But the idea that slavery existed forever is um, in most places in human civilization. I mean, it's true. It even existed in North America with the Haida. Um, I'm sure you talked about that. I didn't read your article on the Haida, but the Haida practiced slavery. And um, the, the point that I wanted to get to with slavery is that when you're applying this ecclesiastical truth that the transatlantic slave trade is the worst one, then it's, it, it makes it so that something that should be up for discussion, which is how bad something is or the specific traits of different types of slavery, it makes it not up for discussion and it makes that particular way of evaluating information the only politically correct one, as in that's the only one that you can use. So it allows other versions of slavery and other versions of indenture to just not be addressed. And I'm very partial to the idea that, and this is a Marxist idea, that a lot of capitalism is exploitation. And when you have a truth like transatlantic slavery is the only slavery or it's the worst version of slavery, then it allows other versions of indenture to just go unnoticed. And the last thing I want to say on that is that like serfdom and a lot of versions of being peasants, I mean, these are these are essentially slavery if you if you break them down enough. I mean, they could definitely be called versions of slavery in undeniably they are versions of being unfree. And I, I remember being in university and, and I had a professor who was talking about the medieval period and I really challenged him and I kept challenging him because I was like, I just didn't get it. Because he was telling me that serfdom and slavery were a different thing. And I was like, but I don't understand the specifics of why. If you're telling me that serfs are owned by the land and then somebody owns the land, then doesn't that just mean that by the transit of property, they're just slaves? They're just owned by the land. Why is that different? They're still not free. And it got down to the point where I asked him question after question where he was like, no, it's different because of this. And I was like, yeah, but why? Why? Why is that different? Why is it different? And it got to the point where he's just like, well, I don't have an answer for you. And I'm like, OK, that's my answer. The answer is they're not different. The answer is they're both slavery. Um, yeah. So specifically, I think respond to whatever you want and what I said. But I think the the main point is that they there are decisions made for ecclesiastical truth and this is applying woke to the religion or religious ways academic ways of viewing religion to the concept of being woke this is something I, I did recently but why how do you feel about the idea that there's ecclesiastical truth in certain areas of academia specifically anthropology I assume by ecclesiastical you mean sort of proto-religious or dogmatic yeah yeah um you know they're they're considered metaphysical truth they're considered truths that that can't functionally be questioned because they're 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 considered sacred um the questioning of them is considered taboo essentially yeah there are certainly and i i, I think that will happen 
that will happen whoever is in charge of uh, whoever is in charge of anthropology there will be axioms that will go unchallenged I think the the dominant axiom that has been in place since the second world war is is something like a a, a simple egalitarianism that that has arisen out of um, essentially sort of socialist thought, I suppose, a Christian socialist thought, just that, uh, you know, humans are fundamentally good. Human nature is is good. Um, and that most of the bad things that humans can get up to are deviations or breaks away from um, this, this sort of simple goodness, which is... Which is part partly the reason why um, anthropologists often gravitate towards people of that mindset often gravitate towards the study of simple forager hunter gatherer bands as as they understand them because they think that it has given them it has been critiqued has certainly been critiqued and will continue to be but it, it has certainly given them a nice story about how human nature is meant to be um, sort of viewing the the Khoisan and the pygmies of the Congo and so on as simple egalitarian um, that they they won't they don't like dominance um, that they are gender equal and so on and so on and so on um, all of yeah. the sort of the you know the, the tick down the list as it were uh, so but, uh, th- that that view, I think, just it's never. I don't think it's always necessarily spelled out. It's not like a a manifesto that you have to read to sign up to, but it's implicit. I think in most of the things, which is yeah. I mean, there's a book that's just about to come out. I saw this morning on the news at the end of September, which, as far as I can tell, is the first book to tackle the question of patriarchy in a long time. Um, written by two older anthropologists. I haven't, I haven't got their names to hand, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it out. I think it's called like yeah. Why Men or something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, those were the sorts of, at least in the 1980s and 1970s, those were the sorts of questions that anthropologists were very curious to, to understand, you know, why did patriarchy arise when it's obviously not natural? Well, you know, how did it come to be imposed when it's it's clearly a deviation from the simple and the um, the equal, as it were? Yeah, and and I think that would you agree that they are when they view the the Khoisan and the and the pygmies as simplistic or simple? That I mean, my perspective on that is that they are just. I mean, they're just not looking deep enough. They're just not looking enough, and they're they're understanding the socially constructed political complexity of our modern world as the only version of complexity. Or do you have a different view on that? I think any sensitive anthropologist understands that those are stereotypes that have arisen in the past few decades, and there are certainly well-meaning liberally minded anthropologists who who do reject those stereotypes but it is i think it's nonetheless a truism that has emerged probably since the man hunter conference um in 64 or 68 or whenever it was that 
that hunt gatherers are are something like the basic default human mode, and that and it and with that comes the basic default human behaviors, which are presumed to be um, egalitarian, sharing, cooperative, um, use methods to subvert hierarchy emerging, um, the ch- sharing of childcare, and so on. And I think they will always be critiqued from within and any anthropologist who spends any time reading the literature will will see that there's great flaws in it but it's nonetheless a story that still permeates through and not just in anthropology but but it permeates out through into the into the wider culture so for example like Pocahontas was a really good example of a film that has really made its way into public consciousness. And, and then lastly with the Avatar films, those are all drawing on these tropes of yeah. peaceful, sharing, gender equal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they all draw from that wellspring of 60s anthropology, which I think yeah. needs to be completely overturned <laughs> from, from scratch, yeah. really. But the problem is, is that people yeah. don't really like what the alternative might be, um, and they don't like it because, in some senses, you know, humans are quite ugly creatures, and you know, our uh, default behaviours can be very unpleasant. They are, you know, if you do, uh, and uh, so, for example, shamanism is a topic that I I enjoy studying, but everything that I've ever studied about shamanism leads me to believe that it would be quite they're, they're quite horrible people typically they're quite petty vindictive they're quite um mean mean-spirited and they they use the power that they have for personal gain and, and personal advantage and i think that those are the sorts of behaviors which we have always known humans humans have and that's but it's part of the christian story and other stories about the sort of the wickedness of man which is has been replaced with something like a fall, but that fall is Western civilization is is the fall, I suppose. These are all simple stories, but there's something to it, I think. So I have a number of things on that. I mean, I'd, I'd love all of what you said. We're, we're going to have to do this again, or seriously. Um, yeah, yeah, by I, all means. As, as long as you want to. to. I mean, um. But yeah, I, I, I look at shamans, shamans quite a quite a lot as well, and I, I share your opinion. I mean, unsettling. I, I don't know if you've seen some of the older documentaries on shamans, but I remember watching one where, I mean, it was probably the only time in a college classroom that I revulsed was uh, watching a Santeria practicing shaman um, rip the head off of a rooster and, and suck its the bone of its neck. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the stuff that shamans are doing. It's not all of what they're doing. And and I do think that I I would say that my perception is that a lot of them are a lot of shamans. And I'm not talking about any specific ones. So I, if, I'm not talking about you if you're listening to this, because I've met shamans specifically that seem pretty good spirited and nice. But there there is an element in that which, you know, maybe that appeals to a certain type of person more so than others. Um, and that leads me into a, to a number of things that I that I wanted that you said, and you brought up the Khoisan, and this is funny because I was talking about the Khoisan just the other day, um, and the idea of sharing. And oh, 
before I go into those two, sharing, I, I was reading a story. I don't remember where it was from. It was either Latin America or somewhere in Africa. But there was an anthropologist who was sitting at a table with a woman. And a neighbor came by and asked for some fruit from their recent harvest. And the woman in there, I mean, the, the, the exchange was very nice. But when she left... When the other woman left, the woman living at the at the house who had just shared some of her harvest, she was like cursing the other woman. And the anthropologist was like, what do you mean? I thought you guys were friends. And she was like, no, I mean, we're whatever. But she only came by like she knew that I had to give it to her because if not, like I'd I'd be worried about being cursed. And like that was such a light bulb for me because I was like, oh, like these situations where somebody's being cursed is there's unwritten social rules that we don't understand and manifestations of somebody becoming the target of some sort of uh, dark wizard or shaman is like that's a very real concern that can have and there's a lot of document ca documented cases that i was talking about recently where people have very real physiological um responses to at least being aware that they have been cursed by someone uh, coupled oh, with sure. the belief in the legitimacy of those. I mean, there, these are, th this is no joke. I mean, these, these have been scientifically studied and even the, uh, even the recovery of somebody once they, once they're told and they believe that they haven't been cursed, they've been uncursed or that it was some sort of mistake. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen it. Um, the other thing is the Khoisan people and the idea of hunter-gatherers sharing a lot. And like, yeah, so technology is often thought about in terms of material culture, in terms of objects that people use. But technology is also political and social technology. It's also like what people do on a regular basis and um, and how they interact with the world. And the, the levels of of social technology that people have uh, using the Khoisan as an example, like the Khoisan have a custom where they go on a hunt. And one of the things that they hunt, by the way, is giraffe, which are massive, massive animals. So you hunt a giraffe and you're the Khoisan people who live in Southern Africa. You are, it's a very, it's, it's a warm place like Southern Africa up to like Tanzania. So like mid Southern Africa, it's temperate, but in the, it, a lot of the times it's warm. It's very warm. Like you can't save the giraffe. So they are sharing the giraffe just like that woman was sharing her harvest because their custom is not to hold on to stuff. So someone holding on to and hoarding stuff is going to be seen as doing something wrong. And there are many customs in different places across the world that are customs of redistribution. Um, like Onga's Big Mocha is about a mocha, a giveaway ceremony where they're redistributing in order to obtain other things like status in this life, like status, which is generally in other societies considered much more important than material wealth. So when we look at these cultures that are sharing their material wealth, Often it's just because they value other things. But looking at it from the Western perspective, we see, oh, they're giving away their material wealth. That's what we value. That must be what they value. But that's not always the case. And in the case of the Khoisan, this idea of them sharing things, sharing their food, yeah, they share. But like, what are they supposed to do? Are they just supposed to let it rot instead? If they share with the villages around them, they're, they're taking an opportunity to break bread with other people it's an opportunity to have a feast and to to rekindle these these kinship bonds and these uh, extended family group bonds and then 
what also happens is the next time that one of those tribes gets a giraffe you're not getting a giraffe every week guys it's it's hard to do it's hard to kill a giraffe you couldn't kill a giraffe okay even if you had a gun you're probably not going to be able to do it i i trust that you can't with a car and a gun um then those other tribes are going to share with them those other bands are going to share with them um and then the last thing is that speaking of shamans in in the modern world this is a concept i talk about a lot is there is there seems like there's a one track to success and and i think that a lot of what we see with thinking about the patriarchy is that you have one path towards success in that you you go to school you go to college you get a good job from a decent company and you buy a house and you retire and it very much is the uh the world path of most associated with upper middle class, white, traditionally Protestant, but today could be Catholic or Jewish or maybe some others, um, white, um, traditionally white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the U.S. It's extended since then, but traditionally that's what it is. Upper middle class, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, non-neurodivergent male. And that's like five to 10% of the U.S. population. It's not a lot of people. And I think that a lot of what we have is in the modern world, a lot of the problems that we have is trying to fit everybody into that box. And what you also have is if that's the one way that you view how somebody can succeed in life, then number one, the majority of people are going to fall short, but you're also going to believe that everything is run by men and with uh, male dominated ideas. So if you're a man who doesn't have those traditionally masculine traits, then you have cognitive dissonance trying to own up to that rather than honing whatever positives you have. If you're a woman who maybe you're these overlapping bell curves and you're closer to that male idea, then you're great. But for the more than not women, it's going to be more difficult to fit into that path. But what you have in a lot of more traditional societies is you have a multipolar path to success. And we were talking about shamans earlier to bring it back to that very weird people. Okay. Like in our society today, I mean, a schizophrenic person can be in a lot of trouble. They can be unsafe. They can like, I mean, they might hurt somebody else. They might hurt themselves. They might be completely harmless, but seem like they're dangerous, be bothered in some way, and then become dangerous when they wouldn't have before. But a lot of traditional societies, they have, number one, they have paths for women and paths for men. And I think finding patriarchy in these societies is often misunderstanding the different roles that men and women fill. Um, for example, the different roles that men and women filled under the great law of peace, uh, which was the rules that governed the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, also known as the Iroquois that inspired the American, uh, partly inspired the, uh, declaration of independence and the constitution. Like these, these rules, they recognize female authority, just not in the ways that you might think. And then in other situations, other specific cultures, you might have female authority recognized in another way and male authority recognized in a different way. And then they're calling it matriarchy. But that's just as it's just it's not true. It's just it's compartmentalized. And as soon as you start trying to decide whose asymmetric power is greater, you're applying a set of criteria to those topics. And that is and that is. If you apply your socially created set of criteria to any specific question, then just don't think that that set of criteria is the only one that you can possibly use, because then you get back into the issue of what happens with slavery. Um, And then, you know, shamans, what people, a lot of people don't realize, I think, is that, you know, behavior recognized 
in a lot of shamans, and this isn't true in any case, because shamans are the most diverse type of religious practitioner. They have such low, really the only criteria for a shaman is that they are convening in some way with the spirit world. And this can be through methods between, you know, DMT and snorting tobacco and just chanting. So it's a different state of consciousness that you're using to convene with the spirit world in order to solve people's problems. But in a lot of ways, in a lot of traditional cultures, in practice, what that meant is that somebody who is what we would call today schizophrenic is or other mental health issues has a way to function in the world that makes sense with the way that they interact with it. And that could be that those people are often they live outside of society a lot of times. Sometimes they don't, but a lot of times they do. Um, and, but it's, it works for them. And I don't know if they're more violent than other people. It probably depends on the type of shaman, but you know, there is a long way of saying that there are rules like the Khoisan, there are rules in society that make sense within the technology that they have. And we shouldn't view those through the lens of the ideas of today. And I don't think people realize how many of the ideas that we have are socially created. Um, and then there's also, there in in civilizations and cultures in the past there were so many different ways of viewing um how someone's power and authority and what they're doing with their life okay so is there anything in there that i said that you can touch on <laughs> it depends what you want to pick up really um it can carry on on whatever the shaman, shaman question there's the question of the superstition and witchcraft or there's the very thorny problem of matriarchy um up to you man wherever you want to go no i think it's up to you which one do you have the most to say on i i like all three of those topics any of these we could talk all day <laughs> frankly i mean <laughs> seriously um, well mate okay well let's i'll just go in order so, well matriarchy matriarchy and patriarchy are very big topics but matriarchy has to be probably up there for one of the most misunderstood and misused terms in anthropology um the the origins of the idea of matriarchy uh, are not really what people people think they are actually most people associate matriarchy with a with the idea of um uh sort of a feminist historiography but i think the original term comes from um Johann bachhoffen's book 1860 i think 1861 1864 something like that um mother right um and it then reappears with studies of the iroquois and then with angles trying to understand the origins of of the the state and the family uh and it's then taken up by uh, feminists in the 1920s who have a have a very different view so you have a right-wing view of matriarchy which which um narcissist nazi thought had uh, quite a lot to say about um and then you had a um a left-wing view of matriarchy which came which comes out of engels and then you had a sort of strange proto original feminist concept of matriarchy which was to do with sacred motherhood and chastity and um and various other things but the what many of them have in common is the idea that that matriarchy like egalitarianism is the original state 
of human beings that matriarchy is the default way that human beings organize themselves i feel like they all missed the point they all missed the point dude (laughs) they then almost all studies of patriarchy assume that it's it's a later development out of um yeah out of a, a sort of communal village life comes comes patriarchy um at a later date the question the question then becomes is that a parable or is it a real story because within anthropology so the definition of matriarchy becomes very difficult then within anthropology so you have people who have always wanted to assume that matriarchy is the, the mirror image of patriarchy so in the sense that you could swap out any standard patriarchal culture, but just replace those positions and the way that the social society is structured with women in in its place. Um, which, to, to to everyone's knowledge, it's the best of basically global anthropologists and archaeologists knowledge. There has never been a culture like that. Uh, there has never been a culture where women occupy the same positions as men do in their in their sort of reversed respective culture that just doesn't happen so then the question is what is matriarchy real has it ever existed well by that definition no matriarchy has never existed but then there's the then there's the more uh, subtle definition of matriarchy which later feminists developed which was well, why would women develop um power in the same way as a man they wouldn't female power would look extremely different to male power actually it would be much more distributed actually it wouldn't be very visible at all it would be quite a diffuse web-like relationship-centric um it would be to do with gathering consensus as opposed to um enforcing rules and laws uh and it would be more related to custom and social ostracism than it would be to do with the application of law in a public way and the division between public and private. Um, And so by that definition, there probably have been something like matriarchies, particularly in Western Africa. Um, Horticultural societies are more famous for having matrilocal marriage systems, which do often afford women not total political power, but more political power than agricultural and particularly pastoralist which are which are usually the most ferociously patriarchal cultures or pastoralists yeah um, so let's define those terms real quick just because my, my show is very uh much for not anthropology professionals mostly so matrilocal meaning people sorry to interrupt you by the way um matrilocal being um it's it's uh this refers not to the not to the type of marriage but to where the couple moves after so matrilocal meaning that they would move in with the bride's family rather than the grooms which would be patrilocal and this sometimes has implications for um the descent and surnames of people um the other terms you said horticultural yeah so pastoralists versus versus horticulture and agriculture um pastoralists are are often uh nomadic uh often pastoralists are are often hurting and they're often uh, very violent like you said and then horticulture is a mix of hunter-gatherer techniques and 
um, and some early farming techniques, whereas agriculture is, is most associated with settled societies, whereas horticulturalists might be, you know, sedentary seasonally, whereas pastoralists are, are more generally associated with, with full n nomadism. Um, unless um, I, I would, did I, I would add to that as well. Well, I would add to that that um, agriculturalists tend to harvest grain, cereal grains, which right. need to be planted, harvested, dried, stored, capped throughout the year. Horticulturalists tend to be in a sort of a trop more of a tropical belt, not always, but tend to be more of a tropical the tropical belt, which means that they prefer things like coconuts and root vegetables, things like yam. Um, um, cassava and so on so it's yeah. and in that sense they that develops two things on top of that one is that those are very difficult to store so if you know the work of james scott apologist james scott he argues that essentially states don't form in horticultural societies because they can't store um their food in a way that is legible to any kind of authority so grain yeah. societies, you can look at a field, estimate the amount of bushels of wheat you'll get. Those can be divided and divisible, weighed, stored, and so on. Whereas horticultural societies use tend to grow roots, which are underground, invisible, scattered. They're often half buried. But, you know, they're sort of patches of them between trees, and they're much more invisible, difficult to grasp. And so a tax collector would struggle to identify the yield you have for the year but also they don't store very well so you can't you know you don't really have next year's sweet potatoes sort of sitting waiting to be equal they're going to be they're going to go off or they're going to get eaten by um other animals um and that relates so that, to the giraffe thing from earlier that that's very interesting that they're uh yeah. they're hidden they're hidden so you can't you can't have a census of the the harvest. That's awesome. And then, of course, you have no way of storing them. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a, still an open question within certain within um, different fields of study. I think economics has taken this one up as a question. But yeah, I think Scott's Scott's probably on the money when he says that. Yeah, ag only agricultural societies could produce something like a state as we understand it, whereas yeah. horticulturalists do produce. Um, you know, they can produce very complex societies, Polynesians, um, you know, very complex societies with chieftains and hierarchy, stratified societies with slavery and war and so on, but still not approaching the full machinery of a state like uh, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the different Han states and so on. Yeah, and, and just the one thing to add to that is that sometimes these horticulturalists can be in a be be in a position where maybe they will eventually move into agriculture and then other times there can be horticulturalists that are you know that that is their basically their their i don't want to say natural state because it's not fully natural but that is like the carrying capacity of the land without introduction of foreign technology so you would have people like the haudenosaunee the iroquois who live in longhouses they have what could be called a state in certain definitions, but not as large as the Aztecs or the Incas or um, Han or Sumeria, but they are practicing agriculture. They are living in longhouses rather than someone like the Haudenosaunee, um, the Eastern Algonquins, or I'm sorry, not the Haudenosaunee, but the Eastern Algonquins, um, the Pequot, the Wampanoag, the Narragansett, they are living in 
horticulturalist states where maybe eventually they would move into agriculture, but they haven't yet. Um, but that's different from, again, like you said, the Polynesians, the example I thought of as well, that are living in a horticulturalist state. Um, but yeah, sorry, I, I brought us off on a tangent of terms. Um, it's fine. It's, I mean, it's an interesting tangent in and of itself. Yep. Um, it is. You know, and, and those definitions can get extremely difficult if you look at people who live, say, in the South Chinese hills or northern Vietnam, places like that, where they're doing Sweden agriculture, which isn't really agriculture as we understand it, but, you know, you're sort of... Growing a field of rice by cutting down the trees one year, you grow your fields, the next year you move on, you grow it somewhere else. Um, you know, there's there are many, many gray areas, and there are many examples of peoples who not only seasonally might might sort of do a seasonal hunt instead of instead of growing plants, but that they may have reverted or, you know, however you want to define it, may have switched system from one system to another, depending on whatever is happening around them. Um, so you have, there are groups in Madagascar who've sort of gone back to hunting and gathering. I think that, I suspect that most of the Amazonian tribes today that we think of as sort of natural Amazonian um, hunter-gatherers are really just the scattered fragments of a much greater horticultural empire that existed on the amazon river that was broken up mostly by disease and obviously the um, colonization by the spanish and have essentially hidden themselves away and reverted back to hunting and gathering as a way of staying mobile um, so as not to die from disease was that are you referencing yeah so yes i i agree with you are you referencing the uh what's his name it's not DeSoto. was DeSoto the one in the mississippi river valley because there was a conquistador that rode down the risk or took a ship down the mississippi river or not the mississippi yes the mississippi <laughs> but a different one the, the not the nile not the mississippi the other one the amazon, the amazon. and and he wrote he wrote like first person accounts and it's the only one or maybe it was written by like his priest and they were writing about all these people on the shores of the amazon is you are you referencing that um yeah and also the archaeological work that's been done yeah since then ground penetrating radar and lidar is finding a lot of stuff in there which is outside our way of understanding yeah there's also what's called the black the black earth um, or the dark earth, I think is the yeah. terra prata. Tierra firma, terra preta. Terra yeah. preta is what it's called. Of, um, of the Amazon. And there's plenty of ceramics. And I mean, this is what the lost city right. of Z is, is all about. And, and um, he wasn't the wrong. The lost city of Z. Yeah, it's, it's a film based on um, uh, Percy, is a Percy Fawcett explorer. Um, Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson and then Charlie Hoonan, who's the guy. How do I not know about this? This is a movie that's a great for me. Film. It's a great Dude, film. I, you know what happened? I was deployed when this film came out, and I've never heard of it. I was I was in the Middle East. I was in the Marine Corps. I, I was in the U.S. Marine Corps. I was in the Middle East, but I've never seen this. I got to watch this today. Oh, uh, you'll have a good, Sorry, have a good evening watching that. Yeah. Well, Percy wow, this is exactly... <laughs> Percy Fawcett was a, a British explorer. He's one of my... Um, one of my... Here, I have a thing. I, I want to write to sort of... Um, uh, one of those biographies, Nine Lives of Biographies, but of um, British explorers who have been forgotten. Um, he was um, 
Yeah, he was one of the first sort of cartographers, explorers of various parts of the, the Amazon rainforest. But he, he came to believe that the the Amazon was not a was not a pristine wilderness, but was in fact a sort of uh, the what what has grown over a, a, a vast empire, a vast horticultural empire that spanned the stretch of the Nile. Um, and the lost city of Z was his sort of, was the sort of um, would have been the epicenter of it. And as far as archaeology is concerned, that that's the specifics of his story, perhaps untrue. But the the idea that there was a um, uh, a much greater uh, horticultural empire in the Amazon does seem to be does absolutely seem to be the case. Um, there's yeah. a lot of work on the lidar, like you said, the the um, the radar that you can see the different shapes and structures of buildings that have come out of it. Um, there's a lot of work on the different pottery stars that have been developed. Um, and the city in 2003 is called something like Kuikuga or something. Anyway, it's a giant like circular um, sort of X city that was discovered in the, in the Amazonian region. Circular. Um, you said circular. yeah, sort of like a set of concentric circles. With a like set road, of concentric circles, circles you know, with like roads leading in and out of it, and so on. Isn't um, that that's the definition, or that's what Plato described as Atlantis? Yeah, well, this would have been right in the middle of the Amazon. So, right, so. it's probably not that. So I, I tend to believe <laughs> I, I agree with. I don't know how much into this the Graham Hancock, Jimmy Corsetti types lost civilization stuff you're in, but I tend to agree with Jimmy Corsetti that it's probably in the Nile, in in the Nile, not the Amazon, is is where Atlantis is. But I, I'm a true believer in the a physical existence of Atlantis. But yeah, so that's interesting. How did I not know? I need to look that up. You said concentric circles. How did I not know about this? I think I'm, I'm looking it up now because I've uh, I posted on it a while ago. I think it's called um, K U H I K U G U, a Kikugu. Yeah, that is a weird anglicization of a word that never should have been anglicized. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So yeah, Percy Fawcett's story. I won't spoil it, but it's a it's a good story. You'll in, you'll enjoy the film. But um, yeah. yeah, I suppose the, the bigger point of that is I think most of these Amazonian peoples that are sort of um, viewed as sort of primal relics are really just um, just the sort of scattered fragments of people who fled disease and have fled war and fled enslavement and they've disappeared into the into the Amazon where they really don't want to be didn't want to be found. Um, and there are, of course, a few that still don't want to be found, but there are, yeah. you know, these are tribe sizes where you're talking about like 20 people, sometimes less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've seen it and people tend to think about a lot of these tribes as uncontacted when, I mean, they're, mm. they're way, they've been contacted for a long time. They've I don't exist, believe, but I there don't are some there that are. are just, I don't think there are any uncontacted peoples left. Well, there, I mean, there's no, well, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're, technically right the north sentinel have been contacted for at least 200 odd years and and that's why i don't want anything to do (laughs) they just don't want anything to do with anyone because i mean the north sentinelese they're aware of the outside world and they've decided they don't want anything to do with it and they've made the right decision oh they're they're very aware of it i posted a thread the other day about um uh a ship um a tanker that was that was shipwrecked off one of the reefs just near 
just near the island in the 80s and um had it not been for some some uh, fortunate weather the the islanders would have were planning to take their canoes and kill everyone on board um Dude. you know and they, they were the people on board the ship were rescued by helicopter and the sentinels went back to salvage what they could because they love metal for arrowheads um, of course they do work it doesn't uh, yeah. to salvage what they could but um no the sentinels are well well aware the indian government had a program for decades of contacting them bringing them coconuts and gifts and various things um hmm. and then they stopped and there's a theory that that's why they became a hostile but to be honest they've just never enjoyed outside company <laughs> i mean good for them man because if they if they really let people in now I mean, they'd be screwed if they let people in now. Just stick with what you're doing. And, and honestly, the only way to stay uncontacted is just to keep killing every single person that comes over there. I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not advocating for violence, but I'm saying that like that is functionally the only way that they will remain uncontacted. I the second we, they let one dude live, we need to change uncontacted to something like um, refused or you know rejected or something. These are people yeah. who are well aware of the outside world. They just don't want anything to do with it. Uh, there are Amazonians yeah. who are like that. There are uh, New Guineans. There are obviously people in Papua New Guinea who, when people say uncontacted, what they mean is like, oh, they haven't seen a city or they've never heard Mozart or something. But yeah, there's not a Christian these, missionary set up in their village. Yeah, all of these people are aware that they exist in a wider world where people with much, with very different technology exist because. Even the photos from the survive charity of the Amazonians who are considered uncontacted all have metal knives. And why wouldn't they? Metal is vastly superior to trying to play around with stone in the Amazon. Um, so they're aware of these things. They just choose not to. Engage. And they, they yeah. probably know that their days are numbered anyway. There's, you know, there's only a handful of right. these, these people left. There's only a handful of Sentinelese left. There may right. be... Right, I mean, it's... Be, maybe hundreds you know it's just not very many i mean they'll inbreed themselves out of existence in a few generations um which is unfortunate but yeah it's it's that's another thing is not only are they they refusing to be contacted in a serious way which which is fine but they are they do have metal is what you're saying like which i i believe you and like that means that they're not only they're not really uncontacted they're Number one, uncontacted implies that they will be contacted, which is good Good correction there on, on how you describe it. But they are choosing which ways they interact with the new technology. And um, this is something that I was going to say before when it became relevant, but it's not now, is that I did an archaeology field school um, in New England, in Connecticut, in my, my home state. And because the archaeological field school is sponsored not only by the University of Connecticut, but also by the local Native American tribe, which happens to be one of the most affluent ones, most Native Americans in America today, I always I always have to bring up contemporary Native American issues based on a conversation I had with a Native American guy a few years ago. That's something that's always on my mind um, because he said to me uh, and everyone who's seen the show has heard this, but like I was talking to him about Native American history, how I would talk to anybody about the history of their country because I'm a huge history buff. And what he said to me was like, hey, I love that you love the history, but please, please, please remember that we are still here. And so I always remember to bring up contemporary Native American issues because there's a lot of issues. Um, So my local Native American tribe is 
and there's a couple of them, but and they are they're rooted in the same tribe, but they've they split up after that. Um, they're they're pretty affluent, and so they sponsored this school. But I did an archaeological field school um, based on a, a war between English settlers in the 17th century and uh, Native Americans, King Philip's War, and I worked under one of the most uh, prominent archaeologists of these people and they so i know a lot about how early contacted indigenous peoples how they would use european objects but they would use them in ways that worked with their culture so they would take like copper copper pots but they would cut up the copper pots to make strong copper arrowheads which would pierce 17th century felt armor they would take um they would use guns that the English had, but they would evaluate the guns. So certain bad muskets, they wouldn't pick them up. They would leave them on the battlefield and they would take other ones. And so there's a, there's a lot of ways that you can look at how other cultures use technology and how they integrate that technology and, and that material culture into their society. And that tells you a lot about the values and um, the limitations of other cultures. Yeah, I mean, it's the standard part of archaeology is to try and understand how material culture has moved through and changed and, you know, been interpreted and adopted and picked up. Um, it's it's one of those things that's been challenged by, as I've written a lot about, it's obviously been challenged by the genetic revolution, but, you know, European prehistory sort of circa 1960s to 1990s has really suffered from this problem that uh, material culture changes without the people in it changing at all. Yeah. Um, which is, which just goes, runs counter to, to everything we know about history. And now we, we can factually prove that that was the case. But um, yeah, the idea that, you know, if, if, if an archaeologist under those impressions was to look at Native American history, they would have, they would assume something like, well, one day they developed a new style of arrowhead that was made out of copper, which would just be absolutely balmy. But, right. uh, but yeah, it, it is um, how technology moves through and is adopted by people. Uh, one of the things that I have read that I'm still reading about, I'm writing a piece about the Maori musket wars and their um, the subsequent annihilation of the Moriori people in the Chatham Islands. Yeah, um, yeah, jeez, <laughs> those nice the, people, dude. Yeah, they were they were nice people. Yeah, um, by all accounts, yeah. by all the accounts we have, they were nice people who were they were deliberately nice people. Yeah, they were they right. were. So, for anyone who doesn't know, obviously the Maori, the Polynesians, who landed on the the island of New Zealand, the the island, the main islands there, um, but south southwest of sorry, southeast of New Zealand are a small set of islands. There's lots of islands around New Zealand, but there's a set of islands called the Chatham Islands, which are somewhere around the 15th century was settled by a much smaller group of Maori um, who then developed, thanks to a particular individual who we know as, I think, as Nunica, who laid out something called Nunica's Law, which was essentially that... Um, there should be no more murder, there should be no more warfare, and there should be no more cannibalism, um, which is very interesting because for the law to stipulate all three of those things tells you exactly what was happening on the island of New Zealand at the time. 
um, yeah. because and, these and, people essentially fled from the island to to the Chathams and set themselves up as a, a pacifist version of the Maori. Um, and just to cut a long story, I don't know if you have you already talked about this in your podcast. I don't want to. No, no, I haven't. So go okay. ahead and talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, when when um, after Cook's arrival and the sort of commercial entanglements with sealers and so on on the island, the Maori were extremely keen to get hold of muskets. And they did manage to get hold of muskets. And the first thing they did when they got hold of them was to wage war on their neighbors, which was a time honored tradition of the Polynesians to wage war on each other um, and to expand. And they did so, but because they weren't limited by, you know, using stone tools, they now had these these muskets. They came extremely close to annihilating themselves as a people. It was a very, very violent set of convulsions across New Zealand. And even today, there's a lot of problems with determining who, which Maori were originally here kind of thing, because, you know, right. their, their ancestors actually wiped out someone else's ancestors and so on. But, um, yeah, one of the... One of the unfortunate side effects of this war was that several Maoris managed to, at gunpoint, force themselves onto European ships headed to the Chathams, force the people on board, force the captain to take them to the Chathams. And once they got there, they realized that the the Moriori who were there weren't armed and by law were not allowed to fight back. And so they essentially genocided them um, using these new muskets and the remnants of the, of the Moriori that survived the onslaught were enslaved by the Maori. They were forbidden to marry one another, to have children with one another. And, um, yeah, different Maori people disappeared off with them all around the place. They colonized the Aucklands with a group of Moriori slaves. Um, they brought some back to mainland New Zealand. Many stayed on the island. It, it took a British magistrate to set the Moriori free. Um, but why I find this story particularly interesting is because the the claims of the Moriori against sort of their oppressors, um, they've they essentially have sued the crown rather than their Maori neighbours for for this action. Um and the Maori by law are considered indigenous to the Chathams, not the Moriori, the Maori who arrived with guns are considered indigenous to the Chathams, even though they arrived fully armed, intending to annihilate them. Um, but that's, this is all on the side. The, the main point I was trying to say was that, uh, yeah, there's a very interesting set of effects that happens when traditional societies are integrated or were integrated between the 16th to 20th century to do with firearms. Yeah. Um, and firearms appear in South Africa, they appear in the Amazon, they appear in New Zealand, they appear in New Guinea. Um, in Afghanistan and all sorts of places. And when that does happen, you see this massive explosion of tribal conflicts, which were already latent and simmering under the surface, which suddenly sort of exploded because they now had access to these firearms. So you have the, um, I never know how to pronounce it, it's like the M for Kane or something, the, the, the Great War in South Africa, where the Zulus expanded. Um, and annihilated their neighbours. The same thing happened in New Zealand. Similar things happened in New Guinea. Similar things happened in the Amazon. Yeah, yeah. American planes. It happened. In yeah, and obviously, um, once the Native Americans got hold of rifles and horses, then they yeah. um, they developed a you know a, a mounted planes culture that I think rivaled anything. Maybe not quite, but but you know, certainly was a, gave a sort of um, 
the Eurasian steppe warriors who could run for money, people like the Comanche, the Apaches, yeah. and so on. The Comanche, the Apache, the Sioux, the Lakota, the Lakota Dakota, yeah. they're both Sioux, yeah. And the that's, Lakota you know, are just fascinating for the fact they just leapt from agriculture to, to um, you know, a steppe nomadic life within basically a generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. And it, it's, it, you know, it speaks to the, uh, how much individuals can have an effect on a, on a small scale, because you, you we're all governed by social constructs in the modern world. But, you know, back then you had one guy who could talk well and had some good ideas. I mean, he could, he could convince 150 people who could then convince a larger network of groups of people to just do something crazy. Like the Seminole just went into the swamp and started grabbing freed slaves and started an armed resistance from the swamp in Florida. Um, a lot, a lot of examples, many such cases, but you got like the, the key for for this is that you have cultures and they have their customs, their ways of doing things. And then you drop in some new technology in that. And that can, that's a disruption. It's always a disruption. Um, in the case of the Plains Indians, this was a situation where you had a raiding culture where people were um where people took over where people were were taking why a, a similar plains culture to to what cultures were on the eurasian steppe but that's where horses were domesticated um whereas in the plains they didn't have horses but they had a culture of raiding that did not include horses and this meant when horses are introduced now they can go way farther and then you have the apache and the comanche and these other tribes that use their new authority and use their newfound skill to just start taking everyone else over. And that's probably what made the Sioux adopt horse culture because they see the Apache and the Comanche going crazy and taking all the Pima, the Papago, the Tohono Ho'odham, all of their people. And they're like, well, we're going to do that too. And it's, it, yeah, it shows, I mean, this stuff is not set in stone, you know, cultures change over time. Moriari to Mori, um, which, by the way, the Maori, Maori, they were only on New Zealand like 1200 A.D. Uh, they, they were, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the ways I, I like to, one of the reasons I like to integrate biology into the study of anthropology is you can view, if you on a wide enough time scale, you can view these things as sort of biological disruptions in a, in a, a sort of a meta population. So, you know, agri- the development of agriculture is a massive biological shift in the way that not only humans but almost all animals and the the way that um humans relate to the wider natural world the domestication of the dog the domestication of cows the ability to drink milk is a you know is an enormous uh shift an enormous biological shift um the opening up of the eurasian steppe which brings the first massive sort of plagues through through europe um the development of bronze you know all these things are they are technologies but they something like drinking milk is a kind of a biological technology that provides right whoever has it with a, an enormous advantage um i have a kind of half-baked theory about um you know uh, expansions and access to saturated fats um mm. you know you have this um the sort of the uh, the Polynesians with access to coconuts and the Bantu with access to palm oil and the 
the Bronze Age uh, riders with access to milk and so I think there's right. I don't know I might be completely off my head but there's, some, there's something about having access to large amounts of fat that just seems to make populations just expand in all directions there there is an association between fats and um and uh brain capacity and and there there was a theory i've read years ago which i don't I, it has some truth to it but i don't think it's it's the main one but there's something to it is that they associated the uh the explosion in brain capacity with uh people living on the coast and eating fish with omega-3 fatty acids and i there's definitely something there with the fats um but okay we're at two hours i need to use yeah. the bathroom Do i need to wanna... leave for i have to leave no, unfortunately yeah. i thought yeah. so yeah so we're good man this was amazing um do you have a few minutes or do you have to leave right now no i can no i've got a few minutes here okay so um i'm gonna stop recording in a second but yeah thank you so much this was an incredible talk i seriously i i would love to have you back literally anytime um I would like, I don't know how much you like doing podcasts, but I, uh, there's another show with a couple of guys and a couple of Southern dudes that do a, they do a conservative commentary show, but they're really interested in anthropology and they have a pretty big reach. I don't know if you're familiar with the good old boys. Um, I know the name. Would you, um, if you're not interested, that's totally okay. But would you be cool with me putting you in contact with them? For yeah, you to go on their show, I will. I will make a uh, a group chat with one of their guys on Twitter. Um, they would really like you. They they um, you know I came on their show. Their guy uh, Marbeck he or Marbleck he loves anthropology, and you know what I told Marbleck was like, hey, I'm going to talk to him. I told him that I think you'd be great, and he agreed. And um, what I told him was that like you're going to embarrass me with how much you know. It's going to make me like because I'm the anthropology guy. You're you're going to make me look dumb. So um, th- no, it's perfect. I, I don't think that happened at all. <laughs> no, no, it's it's actually perfect because you you do do more of the archaeology and I do more of the anthropology, but we clearly both have overlap in it. Look, Herb, I had a great time, man. I'm so glad you came on. Um, my audience is going to love this. Seriously. Uh, I'm so happy. I'll promote all your stuff. Um, if you want, is there anything you want to promote besides your Substack here? Um, I mean, I have a book, which is available right. on Amazon. If you just search my, search my name or if you search the title, you have look as cannibals and shamans, which should give you an insight into, um, the content. Um, yeah, about 95% of my stuff is free on Substack, uh, Grey Goose Chronicles. And, um, yeah, you can find me on twitter and i'm gonna i'm gonna link below to his twitter his Substack, and the book you know i love print books obviously i love print books i got my collection but you um if you want to read his stuff it's pretty much all on Substack. but the book i mean the books of the book so i'm gonna link to the book below link to the twitter link to the Substack, and please go check his stuff out if you like my show you'll like his show um or his uh his writing so yeah, thank you so much for spending the time, man. And we'll, we'll have you back literally whenever you want. And, uh, you know, we have hours more material to talk about. Oh yeah. We, I think we just dipped our time in the water here, didn't we? But, um, it was yeah. a lot of fun and, um, a great, a great pleasure, a great privilege. And, uh, yeah, we'll do this again. Yeah. It was for me as well. Thank you so much for coming, man. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later.